I was never much for athletics at school, or after school for that matter. Perhaps the more analytically minded among you might find the following story to be some kind of subconscious wish fulfillment. I assure you, I meant it as nothing of the sort. It's entirely conscious. Episode 2, The B-Set. There were many things about his new job at Wallach Hill Preparatory School that Henry Bidwell liked. He was fond of the grounds, 50 acres of lush meadow and dense wood in the high weald. The building, too, had its charms, a former manor house of dignified red brick. The students, for the most part, were a good crop of lads, with a zeal for games much like his own, and a boisterous schoolboy humour that filled him with warm nostalgia. There were, on the other hand, a smattering of downsides. The academic staff, for instance. Members of the PE department were uniformly looked down upon by the indoor faculty, who taught from books and laid things out on the board in chalk and expanded the students' minds. Bidwell and his ilk, it was understood, were little more than custodians. It was made clear from day one that he would not be welcome in the teacher's lounge. Nor was he overly keen on Mr Stringer, the head of the PE department. An ex-army man, he had a militaristic hardness to his teaching style, combined with the coarse bearing of a squaddy. Uni man, is it then? Stringer had asked Bidwell on first meeting, following a bone-crushing handshake. That's right, sports education at Loughborough. Stringer furrowed a brow adorned with two of the bushiest eyebrows Bidwell had ever seen, the only hair on the man's head. Not for me, my boy. Games are learnt in the field, not the classroom. They're learnt in the playing of them. Well, naturally, there was a practical focus to the course, Bidwell said, but Stringer had already turned his attention to lighting his pipe. The man wasn't evil, Bidwell thought, just accustomed to a certain tough-love style of leadership that leaned more towards tough than love. His approach with the boys made equal use of intimidation and humiliation, to what Bidwell felt was, at best, limited effect. Look at you! Stringer could be heard to yell at the boys as they trudged through freezing mud and driving rain. I'd be ashamed if I had a body as weak as you lads. How can you stand it? I'd jump off a bridge if I looked like any of you. One class in particular drew Mr Stringer's ire more than any other, and Bidwell had to admit he could see why. The top two years of the school the lower and upper juniors, they were called, were split by ability for PE into two sets, the A set and the B set. Thanks to this arrangement, the inferior B set could be busied with one activity, invariably something mundane, painful, or both, while the athletes of the A set were able to get their teeth stuck into a proper game without having to make allowances for their less capable classmates. It was the B set of the lower juniors, a dozen 11 to 12-year-olds, whose Stringer found particularly loathsome. They were an uncommonly anemic-looking bunch. Their cheeks had none of the ruddiness of your average English schoolboy, and the bags beneath their eyes were prodigious. Each was in some way malformed, be it through shortness, lankiness, posture, or obesity. Whenever Bidwell would see a beset boy around the school out of lesson time, he would, without fail, be engaged in some swattish, antisocial pursuit, reading or drawing or sniffing flowers. 
Bidwell wondered how one group of boys could be so inefficacious and another group perfectly healthy when both were fed the same meals and housed in the same halls. The average lesson with the lower juniors went like this. Mr. Stringer and Bidwell would march the two sets to the scene of the day's trials, be it the indoor gymnasium or the playing fields. The first hour was dedicated to technique and training. All right, Stringer would bark. Cricket cages. Let's have the A's bowling first. The B set would then for half an hour be pelted at top speed with a barrage of cricket balls, utterly helpless to defend themselves. Some of them could scarcely lift the bat, let alone hit anything with it. Then the sets would switch, and the B-boys would ineffectually toss the balls in the vague direction of the A's, who would jeer at their counterparts' ineptitude, often in harmony with Mr. Stringer. At the culmination of the first hour, Stringer would split the sets. A's on the pitch, six aside. Johnson and Carraway, your captains today. Teams picked and ready to play in one minute, and not a microsecond later. As for the B's... You slobs are getting far too complacent. Two hundred jumping jacks each, and you can be sure Mr Bidwell's counting. For the lesson's final hour, Stringer would run a game for the A's, as Bidwell, a few hundred yards away, tried and failed to get anything resembling energy out of the B's. The problem, as Bidwell saw it, was that he had no common ground with these boys. At their age, sport had been his whole world. He hadn't been the best by any means. If he had, he'd have tried going professional instead of teaching, but the B-set, it was clear, saw sport as punishment for a sin they couldn't recall having committed. Oh yes, they were a sorry lot. There was no denying that. Timothy Glossop, for instance, had the ghostly pallor and bulging eyes of a deep-sea fish that saw no light. So bony and frail he was that had you dropped a shilling in his palm, his arm might have broken clean off at the elbow. Then there was Samuel Hollander, who, at over six feet, was the tallest boy in the whole year. The majority of this extra height, however, seemed to come from his neck, from which protruded a red, bumpy Adam's apple the size of a toddler's fist. Not only was he the tallest, but the clumsiest, with balance so off-kilter, Bidwell thought he ought to have his inner ear examined. But the beset boy who was the most beyond help was Humphrey Truelove. Humphrey was a fat boy, the kind of fat which renders the profile almost perfectly globular. He had bright ginger hair, worn in a shaggy bowl cut, and a face more than 60% covered with freckles. He was a quiet young fellow, and when he did speak, it was with a significant lisp and a kind of looseness about the jowls that rendered his speech incomprehensible. Humphrey could not run more than 10 yards without giving off an alarming series of wheezes and sputters. He was incapable of jumping off the ground any higher than an inch and a half. Not only could he not kick a football or hit a shuttlecock, he could not even tell you one from the other. Bidwell, having never suffered from the slightest excessive weight, was at first convinced that the boy was pretending to be so incapable out of laziness. But the more he observed Humphrey, the clearer it became that this was not so. The boy tried, as hard as any of the other B-set boys, maybe even harder, not wanting to be seen as the lamest duck in a particularly lame flock. But he was truly, deeply hopeless. Naturally, Humphrey was, more often than not, at the centre of Mr Stringer's attacks. On one occasion, the man began the lesson by having every boy line up, shirts removed, so that he and Bidwell could inspect their physiques. Do you see, Mr Bidwell, what a gulf we're dealing with? What a drastic disparity? Look here at the A-set, boys. What do you see? They're a good crop, Mr Stringer. A good crop indeed, Mr Bidwell. Hearty young men, 
a little lacking in definition, perhaps, a little immature of musculature. But these are good, healthy bodies. But what do you see when we look at the B-set? Bidwell hesitated. A certain lack of vigour, no doubt. Why, they're skeletal, man. I couldn't find a muscle on these boys if I had a bleeding microscope. Skeletal, I say. With one notable exception, of course. Here, Stringer stopped in front of Humphrey. He extended one finger and flicked the boy's protruding stomach hard enough to make a crack like a clicked finger. What do you call this, boy? This is a body, is it? Humphrey was paralysed with fear and said nothing. Stringer now prodded the boy's chest, setting his swollen breasts in a slight jiggle. Are you a woman, boy? I've seen smaller norks than this in a Soho picture house. You ought to be ashamed at what you've done to yourself. Ashamed. It was, Bidwell supposed, just one of those predetermined curiosities. The B-set were condemned to lives without physical prowess, and that was how it would always be. He continued, though, to be regularly astonished at how low the depths of their ineptitude could sink. One cold, rainy afternoon in early spring, when the lower juniors were learning football, Mr Stringer decided to change things up a bit by pitting the A-set and the B-set directly against one another for an entire match. If the B-set managed to score a single goal, he announced, he would award them the entire lesson off the following Friday, two whole hours to spend however they wished. This instantly brightened up the dreary faces of the B-set. When Bidwell blew the whistle for kick-off, they sprang, as best they were able, into action. It was the first time Bidwell could recall seeing any of them actually move towards the ball instead of retreating from its approach. Naturally, the A-set team maintained total control of the ball for almost the full run of the match, scoring goal after goal past Humphrey, who was, as always, keeper. But in the game's final minutes, it happened that an opening appeared, and Oliver Lanchbury, a B-set boy who was small enough to occasionally pick up a bit of speed, managed to reach the ball and take a kick. And it went in. The B-set team erupted. Oliver, aping the traditional goal celebrations of the A-set boys, threw his arms in the air and ran about the pitch whooping. Stringer, however, was blowing hard on his whistle. Offside, he called. No goal. Oliver stopped running and the smile left his face. Pardon? Offside. What's offside? Stringer rolled his eyes performatively to the amusement of the A-set. Doesn't even know what offside is. Bugger me. The remaining minutes of the match passed uneventfully and the game was called 7-0 to the A-set. The Bees, even accustomed to failure as they were, looked pitiful in defeat. Stringer, after congratulating the biggest and most impressive A's with pats on the back and firm handshakes, blew his whistle for attention. A's, off to the showers. Bees, you're going nowhere. That was a shockingly poor display, shockingly poor. I'm ashamed to have such idle boys under my command. Do you know how this makes me look, eh? It needs to change. I think a bit of cross-country will drive that home, don't you? The B-set was so stunned by this unwarranted punishment that not one of them even gasped in disbelief. Lanky old Samuel Hollander, empowered only by his height, spoke up. But, sir, we've prep for the next hour. Oh, heavens, we've prep! Stringer imitated in a screeching, foppish voice. Well, you've not bloody well got prep today, have you? 
And if you don't get a move on, you won't have supper neither. Especially not Billy Bunter over here. At this last, he pointed at Humphrey. Bidwell, having ushered the A-set back towards the school buildings, tapped Stringer on the shoulder. Will you be needing me to join you for the run? Only I normally supervise prep, so I'll need to let the head know. No, Mr Bidwell, Stringer replied. I'll see to these boys myself. You head on back. Very well, Bidwell said and made for the school. All right, Stringer called to the boys. On my mark. He blew his whistle, then started a steady jog towards the forest. The prep period, which was held for the upper and lower juniors in the dining hall, was time set aside for students to work on their homework for the following day. Bidwell's final two duties of the day were to oversee this period and supper which followed it, after which he would return to his accommodation for the evening. He had expected Stringer and the B-set to arrive back within the hour, but as prep ended and students lined up for the kitchens outside the hall, he began to wonder whether the threat to make the boys miss supper hadn't been an idle one. It wasn't until almost two hours after P.E. had ended, as supper was drawing to a close, that the B-set arrived in the hall, still clad in their kit and glazed with a sheen of sweat and dirt. "'What's all this about?' Bidwell asked the boys. "'Why aren't you changed?' "'We've only just got back,' said one of them. "'We lost Mr Stringer out on the run. "'We spent ages searching for him, until eventually it got dark, "'and we supposed he must have come back here.' "'Really?' How odd. Well, I suppose you'd better eat up before the kitchen closes, hadn't you? Sit tight, I'll be back in a moment. Bidwell rushed off to the PE office, where he and Mr Stringer spent their time between lessons and took their tea and smoke breaks. It looked just as it had when he had left it last. There was no sign of the man. Bidwell searched the games hall, the equipment sheds and the changing rooms, all to no avail, before returning to the dining hall. Almost sixty boys were waiting, as patiently as unsupervised boys can, to be excused. All right, supper's over. Everyone off to their common rooms. Then, as an afterthought, except for the lower B-set. As you got back late, you can have fifteen minutes more to finish eating. What an odd thing to happen, Bidwell thought. As loutish as Mr Stringer could be, he was not one to abandon his post. It was out of the question that he'd become lost in the woods. He regularly ran the cross-country route through it in and out of lessons. Bidwell had the kitchen make him a cup of tea and sat drinking it by the door of the dining hall as the B-set boys, in high spirits all things considered, chatted quietly. Nobody was eating. Probably too unsettled, Bidwell supposed. Stringer did not show up the next day, or the day after that. The local police were brought in to conduct a search of the woods, which proved unfruitful. Nobody who had had any contact with the man had the faintest idea what might have happened. Perhaps he suffered from shell shock, one constable theorised. Something could have happened to trigger an episode. Hearing a farmer's gunshot, maybe, and he went AWOL. Sounded about as likely to Bidwell as any other possibility. Not very likely at all. In his absence, Bidwell was made de facto head of the PE department. Not that this promotion was accompanied by any additional form of compensation, he noted. He had already been shadowing Stringer most of the time since he had first come to Wallach Hill, so the effect on his daily schedule was negligible. There was one significant change, however, brought about by this new arrangement. From the very first lesson with the lower juniors following Stringer's departure, the B-set boys were all but transformed. It was raining that Friday, the same day Stringer had promised them off if they'd scored a goal, so Bidwell brought both sets inside the sports hall to play badminton. He had them split off into pairs for doubles. 
The B-set was odd-numbered, so Bidwell partnered with Humphrey himself. He braced himself for an ordeal, but was astounded when, having blown the whistle to begin play, every boy in the room jumped into action with an unprecedented ease and enthusiasm. Where they had before been languid, they were now sprightly, once bumbling, now relatively graceful. Had Bidwell not been familiar with the boys, he would not have known by sight which were the B-set and which were the A's. Even fat, bumbling Humphrey was improved. He was capable of moving at pace after all, and, though he became winded, his recuperation did not take nearly so long as it had done previously. Though he was slow, he was not without coordination, and managed a few good swipes of the shuttlecock when it was sent his way. Bidwell was shocked. Had the boys so feared Stringer that his mere presence had been enough to quash their innate talents? The next time he taught the lower juniors, he was curious to find out if it had been a fluke. He had a suspicion about Humphrey, that there was, hidden within the boy, the potential for real improvement. It had to be guided correctly, of course, and nurtured. So Bidwell elected to start rugby season early. They began the lesson by practising tackles. The boys were again paired up for this, and as Humphrey well outclassed any of the other bees in weight, Bidwell placed him with Arnold, Monty, Montgomery, the most developed of all the A's. It pleased Bidwell to see that the bees seemed to have retained their newfound vigour, and most of them got happily stuck in grappling one another, not something he was sure could have happened under Mr Stringer's oversight. Humphrey, however, was not proving as able a forward as he had hoped. When Monty tackled him, he went down hard, assuming a curled semi-fetal position and instantly yielding the ball. When it was his turn to tackle Monty, he could not build up enough speed and actually slowed down the closer he got. When he made contact, it was with all the ferocity of a six-week-old baby embracing a teddy bear. Perhaps, Bidwell supposed, he would benefit from some intervention. Now, true love, he said after observing the pair for a minute, you've got to put some welly into it, boy. Build up a head of steam. Sir? said Humphrey. I'm saying you need to get worked up, boy. It's quite within your capabilities to give as good as you get. Humphrey blinked, his eyes nearly obscured by his thick red fringe. Come on, let's see you have at him again. Monty, don't go too fast for him. Monty started in a slow jog. Humphrey did nothing until Bidwell gestured for him to run. This time he kept a steady pace until he reached Monty, but once again his tackle was limp. No, 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 Bidwell cried. What's the matter? Are you afraid of hurting him? Are you afraid he'll scald you to touch? Humphrey was baffled and struggled to get any sound out past his tongue. I, I don't understand, sir. What don't you understand? Bidwell was raising his voice now, not to reprimand, but to fire the boy up. Humphrey didn't seem to take it that way and flinched at the noise. What is it you don't understand, Humphrey? Look at you. You're a monster. He shouldn't have a hope in hell of surviving a tackle from you. There was silence on the field as all the other boys had stopped what they were doing to witness the commotion. Try again, true love. Knock him senseless. Monty, get running. Once again, Monty set off at a placid rate. Go on, true love. Get him. Humphrey ran, faster than Bidwell had ever seen him move. Within ten seconds, he had reached Monty and was following closely just about matching his pace. Now, true love! Humphrey leapt. Both of his feet left the ground at once, half through intention and half from the slippery ground. His arms up, like a man feeling blindly in the dark, his right shoulder connected with Monty's midsection. 
There must have been some power behind it, as Monty had the wind knocked right out of him. The ball fell. So did Monty. Before he knew what had hit him, he was on the ground, with Humphrey Trulove on top of him, looking entirely disoriented. A cheer came from the watching boys, both A's and B's. Beaming, Bidwell started up a slow clap. The following few weeks were the most rewarding in Bidwell's career. The distinction between A-set and B-set all but fell away. The A's were still the superior players, but the B's were no longer an afterthought. Now, if you pitted them against each other, the conclusion was not foregone as it once would have been. Bidwell considered it indicative of his prowess that a mere fortnight under his sole tutelage had yielded such results. So it was with great distaste he realised that whatever spell had been cast was wearing off. It went as quickly as it had come. One Friday, the bees were lively. The following Monday, they might as well have been asleep. The colour had actually drained from them, Bidwell could have sworn. It was that drastic a change. Glossop, Bidwell demanded. Let's see your place kick. Far as you can, boy. The little fish-faced fellow flopped up to the ball, drew back his leg and swung it forward. It missed the ball by a ruler's length. What do you call that? This isn't ballet. Do it again. Glossop tried a second time, and a third. On the third, he made contact only with the tip of the ball and sent it gently rolling a few feet to the west, never leaving the ground. By God, said Bidwell, not Glossop's day, is it? Someone else, then. Hancock. One by one, he had the boys take practice kicks. By the fourth feeble tap, he knew something was amiss. Whatever was the matter with these children? Why was there such uniformity among them that when one was strong, they all were, and when one was weak, they all were weak? It made no earthly sense. By the end of Monday's lesson, Bidwell was utterly deflated. As the week wore on, he found himself dreading Friday and its potential confirmation that the B-set were incapable once more. He slept poorly on Thursday night, having had a drop of whiskey too many and suffering from an early awakening to rid himself of it. By Friday lunchtime, he felt cracked and squashed, like an old leather football. He fortified himself with a few cups of strong instant coffee before heading off to his lesson with the lower juniors. It was a travesty, just as he'd predicted. The B-set were worse than they'd ever been, lolloping like newborn bunnies in the syrupy afternoon air. At least if Stringer had been there, they'd have been startled into wakefulness. Now they were as inert as a stagnant pond. Maybe that was the matter, he supposed, watching yet another pillowy tackle. He had been too soft on the boys. They had become complacent. Perhaps he'd been wrong to doubt Stringer's blunt approach. The man had a great deal of experience, after all. He knew what he was doing. True love, Bidwell called, in the midst of a lull when all the boys could hear him. Get over here. We made some progress with your tackle, didn't we? I sincerely hope it stuck. Humphrey, sedated in the hot sun, waddled over from where he had been staring into space. I've been rather disappointed with you bees this last week. We'd been making good strides, and now you've fallen right back into whatever pit it was that I pulled you from. It won't do, I tell you. Now, True Love here is going to show us the tackle we worked on, and he's going to do it right. And what's more, he's going to tackle me. Don't worry, though, I'll make it easy for you. I'll be standing still. Let's have it, then. Bidwell whistled sharply through his teeth and braced himself where he stood. Humphrey, only half-present, was unsure what was required of him and looked around for help. Go on, Humphrey, Monty said sincerely. Show him what you've got. 
A smattering of encouragement came from the rest of the A-set. Bidwell abruptly silenced it with a flashed scowl. Humphrey, now feeling the pressure of his assembled classmates' eyes on him, pushed off into a weak run. His legs, it appeared, would not allow him to come to speed, and he arrived at Bidwell in little more than a jog. His tackle consisted of a half-hearted flop onto Bidwell's midsection. Bidwell stepped back before Humphrey could get a grip on him, and the boy fell belly first onto the hard, baked dirt. Just as I thought, Bidwell spat. You've all gone soft again. My mistake, I'm sure, for thinking any one of you had more aptitude than a tin of beans. Humphrey, a little dazed, had not yet righted himself. Oh, get up out of the mud, you fat little fool! What a miserable sight. Bidwell turned to face the rest of the B-set, who averted their eyes from his gaze. What a miserable sight you all make! What did I do, eh? Which fate did I offend to be lumped with such a useless lot of wimps? It won't do. It just won't do. Over at the schoolhouse, the bell rang. The lesson was over. A's, off with you. B's, you're going nowhere. A cross-country run would teach them. That's what Mr Stringer would have done. The sun seethed through the canopy of the trees. Running through the woods like this, passing quickly from shadow to sunlight and back again, Bidwell found that his eyes never quite adjusted one way or the other. It did his sore head no favours, but it was worth it to show the B-set he wasn't to be trifled with. The tough love method was already working. The boys had run sluggishly for the first half mile, but now, with the crunch of the forest floor beneath them, they were matching his pace, though not without a corral of huffs and puffs. Perhaps we ought to make this a weekly run, eh? Bidwell shouted over his shoulder. I think that'll go a long way towards avoiding another of these slips, don't you? No boy responded. He turned to look and saw they had veered off the track he was following and were headed as a group off into a denser area of woodland. That was his mistake, Bidwell supposed. This was the first time he had run the cross-country route. When he took his own morning exercise before school, he preferred to run the main road up into the village and back. He doubled back on himself and followed them into the thicket. It wasn't the clearest route... Bidwell soon found himself scraped about the legs and arms by holly and other sharp, pokey branches. He stopped to disentangle himself and looked up to find that he had lost sight of Humphrey at the rear of the group. Those little bastards. They were trying to lose him. Oi! Bidwell cried. What do you think you're playing at? Everybody come back here this instant or you'll be doing this run every night of the week for the rest of the year. He heard nothing and struggled on through the undergrowth. Eventually, he emerged into a strange area. He stood at the outer rim of a crater, some five metres deep at its nadir. It did not look like a natural formation of the land. Trees at its edge had their roots exposed, half in and half out of the whole sandy dirt banks. It seemed like the result of an excavation some years ago that had been abandoned before being filled in. Across the diameter at the crater's far side lay a fallen tree. Though now horizontal, its base had not been fully removed from the earth, and it still grew. No boy was to be seen. Bidwell heard no movements, just the chirping of birds, the distant knocking of a woodpecker. What on earth? Bidwell muttered. He attempted to step out further onto the rim to look more closely into its depth. He could not find solid footing, however, and slipped over the edge. B-7 
Speedwell let out a short cry as he skidded on his seat down the incline, coming to a rest where the ground levelled out. He looked back at where he had stood and saw that it was higher up than his own full height. He stood dusting himself off. Boys, he called, where is everybody? Bidwell walked into the centre of the crater and slowly rotated, looking for some sign of the B-set. What an unusual area this was. He wondered if the class had known of it, if this had been where they were heading when they turned off the path. All too late, Bidwell heard a thumping gallop behind him. Humphrey Truelove, at speed, tackled Henry Bidwell's back and knocked him off his feet. Bidwell landed head-first on a thick, knotted root, which instantly drew blood. He felt it trickling down his face, mingling with the dusty earth below his head. He could not move his neck, but from the way he was facing, he could see, in the wall of the crater, a small cave formed from the roots of one of the rimside trees. It was just a large enough opening that it could be crawled into, though at present it was occupied. The body in the cave was clad in shreds of athletic gear, torn tracksuit bottoms, and an old white vest, now encrusted with brown blood. What flesh was visible had been rent open, torn at, and left to be fed upon by the insectoid denizens of the woods. There he is, Bidwell thought. The police must not have looked very hard. They were on top of him now, the boys. He could feel their pubescent hands digging into his back, his legs, beating into him with sharp rocks and sticks. He heard them biting his flesh, though he could not register any pain, just the numb sensations of their weight on him, and he, unable to move, or speak, or do anything at all. If you've ever seen a dozen or so eleven-year-olds eating, you know what a mess they can make. The B-set, however, were careful. They practiced just enough manners to avoid soiling their clothes. When they were full, and had hidden Bidwell with Stringer, they rinsed their hands and faces clean in a nearby stream before heading back to school. They wouldn't meet much questioning from the staff they knew, so long as they quietly joined in with prep and made no fuss. There would be some question of Bidwell's whereabouts over the next few days, and maybe another search, but nothing too thorough. After all, he was only a PE teacher. <laughs>